You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who he sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you, you, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, This is he of whom I have said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained... Sorry. And it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. I'm so excited about what happened yesterday, five people going through the the waters of baptism uh, today, as I just said. Three more uh, kids getting baptised. We're going to have a confirmation moment as well and communion. It is amazing how in God's kindness and providence he has uh, lined up all these things to fall on today uh, and give me the opportunity to be preaching from John chapter 1, which is helping us to look forward to next week when Mike's going to help us dive into the first sign that we see in John chapter 2. As we just heard, we're kicking off that uh, Advent series in the Seven Signs of John, and today I do get that chance to point us into that, but also dive into the beauty of what's happening, what's taking place in Christian baptism as testified to by John the Baptist. Uh, Now, this might be a little bit confusing, so let me try to clear it up. Uh, This morning, we are in John's Gospel account, or his biographical account of Jesus' life, But in our passage today, we are hearing about John the Baptist. So for clarity's sake, I'm going to call the guy who wrote the book, John the author. I'm going to call the guy doing the baptizing, John the Baptist. See, that's why I get paid the big bucks, (laughs) to come up with these amazing creative terms that help everybody learn the Bible. Uh, Also, for the sake of context, here's what's been happening in the preceding 18 verses in John chapter 1. A lot. 
more than we have time for today. Uh, but my prayer is that one day we will dive into all that John has. I was you know, explaining to Hannah during the week, I was like, just in our passage today, I'm just sort of casually rolling over some incredibly deep and wonderful uh, things that point back to the Old Testament, point forward to the New Testament, things that we could spend whole sermons diving into. Uh, And so I'm discouraged that we don't get to do that today, but I'm encouraged with the way that God is lining up all these other things. But to summarise these first 18 verses of John, John the author has been declaring the cosmic Christ, He's been showing how Jesus is the Word of God, the Logos of God, through whom all things were made and for whom they were all made. And then in verse 6, John the author, he notes that God sends John the Baptist. Uh, we'll be, um, as a, he sent him as a witness, someone who would herald the coming of Jesus and for the express purpose that all might believe through him. Now, before we go any further, this is the purpose of our upcoming series. We'll be looking at the seven signs through John, the author's account. And what we will notice, a bit of a spoiler for the whole uh, series we're about to go into, is that all of these signs were reported for the purpose of that all might believe through him. Now, back to context. When we get to verse 19, John the author, he's coming back to zoom in a bit more on the purpose and mission of John the Baptist. And it's in these verses, 19 through to 34, that we're going to sit today. My prayer is that as we walk through these verses, we'll be struck by two things in particular. Firstly, the power of witness. Secondly, the power of God. So our first point today, the power of witness. Let's read once again, John 1 verse 19. Uh, through to 28. It says, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you were neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptising. Now, each one of us has had or have those friends, or we at least know of someone who is the classic salesperson. Someone who is able to convince people on almost anything, sort of sell snow to Eskimos sort of type thing. Women and men who know uh, and they just ooze this charisma. Uh, They usually smell great for whatever reason. And whenever they talk, you just find yourself completely buying whatever they're trying to sell. And I had a mate in high school who was like this. He could convince teachers to change their whole curriculum. He could convince other students to join his endeavours, no matter how troublesome they might be. And he was always the guy you wanted around because of his ability to get a bunch of teenage boys out of pretty much any trouble we found ourselves in. Now, usually, 
these people are like type A personalities, borderline narcissistic. Uh, they are completely convinced about themselves, don't really need any pep talks, and they usually get what they want simply by walking into a room and just talking. Well, I hold up this example as a direct contrast to John the Baptist. Other gospel accounts report that this guy wore animal skins for clothes, ate bugs for breakfast, lunch and dinner and lived in the bush. He was not anything flash to look at. He was not anything flash to listen to. And yet he could pull a crowd, as Matthew 3 uh, points out to us. People were coming from all over the place to Bethany, across the Jordan, as verse 28 just told us. Uh, For intents and purposes, this location is in the middle of nowhere. But people were coming from far and wide to listen to and be baptised by this guy who, by all accounts, did not live up to the hype of a mega personality or celebrity. What was it about John the Baptist that compelled people? What was it about his influence that drew even the religious leaders of the day to come and question him, question his work and his message? Well, it was the power of his witness. Firstly, John the Baptist makes it clear that he makes it clear to uh, those people then and makes it clear to us today reading it who he isn't. He says in verse 20, he's not the Christ. Verse 21, he's not Elijah and he's not the prophet. Things I unfortunately do not have time uh, to dive into today. But finally, in verse 23, we get an answer of who he is. He says that he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Now, if we're working, if we were working through the Gospel of John as a, a book in its own right, I'd be stopping and explaining all of these points, mostly just as an opportunity to be a nerd, but also because they really help us to understand exactly who Jesus is. Nothing that John the author is reporting here is superfluous. It's all very significant and points back to a lot of Old Testament references that have huge implications, especially for these Jews. For our purposes this morning, though, we're going to quickly zoom in on what this last line means when he says uh, he's one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Well, to understand this is to understand John the Baptist's very purpose, what God made him for and why he placed him in the time and place that he did. John the Baptist is pointing to a prophecy by the Old Testament prophet Isaiah and uh, John the author is highlighting that John the Baptist is this prophet which Isaiah talks about, one that would prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah, the anointed one. And this quote is from Isaiah chapter 40, which is a a beautiful piece of scripture and it attests to God's promise of forgiveness and healing for the broken people of Israel post their exile. Uh, Listen to these words, just a snippet from Isaiah 43 to 5. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so John, the author, is highlighting how John the Baptist 
Is this one who is intentionally purposed to do this, who has heard God, who is obeying God and is trying to point the people to the coming of God's suffering servant who will be the very revelation of God's glory? His very purpose is to be a witness and a signpost. Now, living in Dubbo before we moved up to Brisbane, uh, Dubbo is a smallish uh, country town about 400 kilometres west of Sydney in New South Wales. And the further west you went, the longer it gets between towns and villages. Like you could drive for six to ten hours without hitting a township. Uh, and especially at night, it was always extremely reassuring to see a signpost. A sign on the side of the road telling you how many more kilometres you have left to the nearest town. And this is what John the Baptist was doing. He was simply pointing to something that was greater. His confession of not being the Christ, Elijah or the prophet are also telling us that he's pointing to something, someone greater. Which leads us to ask the questions, how was John witnessing and what was he witnessing about? As to the how, well, John was witnessing at least two ways that uh, are significant for us this morning. Firstly, he was preaching. Matthew's gospel makes this clear for us. In Matthew 3, it clearly states that John was preaching repentance for sins. But it's also clear in our text today, uh, that John preaches to those who are questioning him in verses 26 and 27. He said, uh, it reports that John answered them, I baptise with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Yet another example of how he's pointing to something, someone greater who is coming. And he's going to go on to say more in just a little bit, but it's clear that one of the main methods of John's witness is his preaching. That something better is coming and indeed is we also see that John's baptizing is a method of his witnessing. The Pharisees go on to ask John in verse 25, well, why are you baptizing? They, are, they say to him, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, why are you baptizing? What's the purpose for your baptism then? Now, we've already heard a part of this reason. He is one crying out uh, in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's Baptism in water in this specific location on the other side of the Jordan, it's a form of ceremonial cleansing that was being used to point people to something greater coming. Again, one of those things we don't have time to go into today, but suffice to say, John's baptism was doing a few things. Firstly, it was a ceremonial cleansing that meant something very significant to the Jews of John's day. Plus, he was baptising in a place that represented where the Jews originally crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. We talked about this earlier in the year when we worked through the book of Joshua, uh, where we witnessed a cleansing take place before the people crossed over the Jordan. John, the author, he's trying to help his readers connect the dots. Something is about to change and the people must be ceremonially clean and ready for God to move. But among other things that we won't go into today, the second thing is that John's baptism was working as a witness, as a signpost. It's doing the same thing that our baptisms did 
yesterday. It's the same thing that our infant baptisms will do this morning. They are simply pointing, witnessing about something greater. It is important, it is significant, but it's also simply a sign. The uh, Anglican liturgy uh, or order of service uh, that we utilise for baptisms, it makes this abundantly clear for us. It says, ordinary water is being used to to point to the extraordinary work of God in cleansing us from sin and giving us a new heart to trust and serve him through the death and resurrection of his son. I've got some water in a bowl right here to be used a little bit later. I don't mean to blow anybody's mind this morning, but I poured that water out of a little Coles uh, water bottle uh, that we bought from the shop. There's nothing magic, there's nothing holy, there's nothing special about this water. Once again, it is simply a sign. It points us to something greater that has happened in Christians already through the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's just a witness. It's a powerful witness, but it's just a witness The reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they talk about the witness of baptism and the other sacrament, communion, uh, which uh, or the Lord's Supper, which we're also going to take a bit later. They talk about these things in terms of the gospel made visible. Again, Anglicans are helpful in the 39 Articles of Religion, which outlay the Anglican Statement of Faith. It teaches us what the sacraments are and what they do. It says in Article 25, sacraments ordained of Christ... Be not only badges or tokens of Christian profession, but rather they be certain, sure witnesses and effectual signs of grace and God's goodwill toward us, by which he does work invisibly in us and does not only quicken, but also strengthen and confirm our faith in him. There are two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is baptism and the supper of the Lord. Now, yesterday, during the baptisms, each of us witnessed the gospel visibly. We saw uh, our sister and our brothers in Christ physically and symbolically identify with the actions of Jesus on our behalf. His going into the grave, uh, we go under the water. His raising to life from the grave, in, from the grave, uh, from the grave for in new life, we are brought out of the water. In that moment... All of us watching are witnessed to by those being baptised. We see with our eyes, we hear with our ears what Jesus has done in them. And it reminds Christians of all that Jesus did for us. And it shouts to the unbelievers among us who are watching, Behold the Lamb of God. In fact, if you were uh, you're here with us today, and you don't yet trust in Jesus. So thankful that you came today, and probably particularly that you came today. My prayer this morning is that as you see and hear today our witness about all that Jesus has done for us through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, that you might turn from your wrongs against God, which the Bible calls sin, and you would place your trust in Jesus as the one who lived perfectly on your behalf. Now, a bit later in the service, we're also going to take communion together, uh, also called the Lord's Supper. And this sacrament, in this sacrament, we take a, a small cup and we take a piece of bread. And again, they are just tiny 
signposts. They witness and point to something greater. They point back to when Jesus gave his body, represented by that bread, uh, and they point back to his spilt blood, represented by the little cup of juice uh, when he died on the cross on our behalf. We look back to that moment and we thank God. But we also look forward to the time when we'll eat an eternal meal with all the Christians across the globe, across the entire span of history at the heavenly table, which is headed by God himself. The meal looks back, but it also looks forward. And one of its primary purposes for why we eat it often in the here and now is because it makes the gospel visible. Every time we pick up the bread and the cup, we, as Paul the Apostle tells us, we proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. We witness to our own hearts, but also uh, all of those around us that, this is, that it's only through the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus and the triumphant resurrection of Jesus that we can have forgiveness of sins and life abundant in Jesus. That's why I say, I'm glad you turned up today. You're getting to see the good news of Jesus as well as hear it. I'm praying that your heart would open up to Jesus, that you would behold the Lamb of God. So far in our text, we've seen the power of witness. We've seen that John the Baptist, he was a a great man. He was an odd dude, but a good dude, a faithful dude. But he's not great because of who he is, or who he was, but because of who he witnessed about. He made this witness through preaching or proclaiming, but he also made it through uh, his witness through baptizing in water, a baptism which was pointing to something and someone greater than himself. And what is amazing is that Jesus has called every one of his disciples to do likewise. This is not something that stopped with John the Baptist. Now, John, the author's gospel account doesn't mention this particular part, but Matthew's gospel account helpfully fills us in. Uh, Look what it says in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, when it tells us regarding the disciples after Jesus' resurrection. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This commissioning, this sending for the purpose of witnessing is also something that you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to today. We are to love our neighbours as we love God. A a great example is what we just heard with Kim sharing her testimony about Richard and Jackie, getting alongside of them, pointing them to God's word, loving them, welcoming them into their family. It's just such a simple way of bringing people face to face with the goodness of God in the gospel, loving our neighbours as we love God. We show them the love of God through Christ Jesus. We tell them the good news. So we show them the good news and we invite them to hear God's word proclaimed with the old ultimate desire to see them baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, being welcomed into God's family and being marked out as God's chosen people. Which takes me to my second point. We continue to understand that we've been called to witness 
to give a powerful witness like John the Baptist, but a witness that isn't just that is that isn't about us, but it's pointing to point to the power of God. Let's keep reading, verse twenty-nine to thirty-four. The next day we saw uh, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." This is he of whom I said after me, comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. So right now he's thinking back on the moment, probably a couple of days earlier when Jesus was actually baptized. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Now, this is one of those really nerdy moments that I wish we were able to pause and stop in uh, for time's sake. I hope your mind goes back all the way to Genesis with the flood account when Noah sent out the dove and it found a tree, it found land, there was water involved, there's a dove involved. Can you see how John's trying to connect dots for people? It's so cool. If you don't like the Bible yet, let's chat. Uh, And it it remained on him. Yet again, another very specific thing. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Church, this is a phenomenal testimony. What a privilege for John the Baptist to have witnessed this moment and what a joy that we, some 2,000 years later, get to read of it, get to imagine the scene and come face to face with the power of God in Jesus Christ. And it's the day after John the Baptist was telling those religious leaders all about this one who was coming, who ranked before him. So what does all of that mean? Well, technically, John the Baptist was born before Jesus. In fact, he was Jesus' cousin. And yet, John the Baptist knows that Jesus ranks before him that he existed well before John the Baptist did in eternity, even before John identifies Jesus as the Son of God. John is pointing out Jesus' divinity, his godness, by saying that Jesus was before him, ranked before him, even though John was technically born before him, which in that culture would have given him an authority over Jesus, uh, who was his younger cousin. But John knows that Jesus is the Son of God. John is saying, this is why I came. This is why I baptize in water. I'm pointing to this greater one who will come and who is indeed here. And John holds out two major claims about this Jesus. Firstly, he's the Lamb of God. Secondly, that the Holy Spirit has descended upon and remains upon Jesus, who in turn baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. And what does John mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? This is actually... Super important Old Testament language. Uh, Again, uh, we're not overly familiar with. um, But it points back to the sacrifices that were made for the sins of the people by the priests on the altar of a blemish-free lamb. Again, this was purely symbolic, but it pointed to what Jesus would do on the cross as the real and once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Now, the clearest picture of how this language is ascribed to Jesus is to look back to the Passover as reported in Exodus. In the days of Moses, when he's trying to lead the Israelites out from their slavery of in Egypt. Um, Sonny and Zoe, my kids, have been re-watching The Prince of Egypt lately. 
uh, which, while it's a Hollywood version of the story, does not hold back on the reality of this Passover moment. Now, you can go and read about this in Exodus chapter 12, but to summarise, the people are told to sacrifice a lamb, they are to paint their doorposts with its blood, and during the night, when God sent the destroyer, as Exodus calls it, those who did not have their doorposts painted lost their firstborn sons. But God passed over those houses that did have the sacrificial lamb's blood painted on their doorposts. In the New Testament, Jesus shows how this sign has been pointing to his work all along. He institutes the Lord's Supper, sort of like a Passover 2.0. Instead of God's people remembering that Egypt moment, now all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, which just means everyone else who isn't a Jew, now remembers how God passed over our sins by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, the true sacrificial lamb of God who was slain that we might have life. And this is just one picture of how the Old Testament speaks to the Lamb of God. Uh, there's also places in the New Testament that speak uh, as to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And it is hugely important, it's a hugely important aspect of God's redemptive plan to understand. But for our purposes today, it's good to understand, church, that this is the gospel. This is the good news Jesus took our place on that cross as the sacrifice for our sins. Instead of us paying the right penalty for our sins, Jesus took it completely upon himself. And so now we are baptised in order to identify with, to show that we are united to Christ, that we are in Jesus. And we do this through baptism in water as it points to the reality to, uh, as it points to this reality and to the other reality, which is that Jesus baptises us with his Holy Spirit, which means we have new life through him, granting us spiritual life. Our water baptism points to his Holy Spirit baptism, which Jesus has already accomplished in those that he has brought to spiritual life. The theological term for this being regeneration. Our dead hearts being brought to life through the Holy Spirit. And Jesus can do this because he is the anointed one, the one upon whom the Holy Spirit has descended and remains. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for particular moments or to accomplish particular things. King David is a good example of this or the prophet Elijah. But now in Jesus, the Holy Spirit remains. And Jesus grants his spirit of life to those whom the Father gives to him. Now, you might be saying to yourself, this is great. I've learned a lot. But how on earth does this help me tomorrow morning when I wake up and I've got to go to a job I'm struggling in or I've got to go study in an environment that hates God, or it's 5am and my kids are already yelling at me, or I've barely slept because my mental health is just in how does knowing this information about who Jesus is, what our baptism is, and how it all points back to Jesus' work on the cross actually matter for how I live my life come tomorrow morning? Great question. I'm glad all of you all asked. It's a reminder. It's a reminder that our biggest problem, the problem that causes all other problems, now not 
always directly. For example, your poor mental health is not God's punishment upon you. But it is a reality of the sin-broken world we live in. So our biggest problem, our sin against a good and holy God in Jesus Christ, through his perfect life, his sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection from the dead has now been completely dealt with. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has been slain on our behalf. And now he grants us baptism in his Holy Spirit, a new heart that loves God, loves God's law. We are gifted life and this is how it helps us tomorrow morning. When you wake up and the troubles of the world are before you, remember, behold, the Lamb of God. When you wake up in the morning and your relationships are still broken and traumatic, church, behold, the Lamb of God. And tomorrow, remind you that you are not enough, that you can't earn enough money, get enough accolades, find enough affirmations to fill those holes in your heart. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The band comes. Church, this is what we get to do for the next six weeks leading to Christmas. We'll be beholding Jesus Christ, beholding his glory, his power, his compassion, his mercy. We'll be spending six weeks preparing our hearts for Christmas Day when all of God's people will celebrate the Lamb of God, being born as a baby in a manger, who grows up, lives perfectly according to God's law, who dies the death we deserve to die, who grants us his triumphant resurrection life through the gift of his Holy Spirit. And what we're going to do now uh, as a church is sing together. Our usual practice with uh, baptisms or infant baptism days uh, is to recite the Apostles' Creed. It's a statement of the teaching of the New Testament put into a helpful summary that the Christian church has been confessing together for near on 2,000 years. But instead of saying it, like sort of reciting it in spoken word today, we're going to sing it. Helpfully, some people turned it into a song. Many of you would be familiar with it. And it's a great opportunity for us as a whole gathered body together to sing this, to proclaim and profess the faith that we believe. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.